theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall not inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger for thirst and righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall not receive mercy. Blessed are the pure, for blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall not, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who who are persecuted for righteousness. Sakes, sorry. Blessed are those for who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Join me in a time of prayer once more. God, we pray and ask that would you have mercy upon us at this time and as we are about to hear from you, to speak to us, O oh God, now. May your word pierce our hearts, may it encourage us, may it challenge us, may it stretch us, and may it rebuke us if needed so that we will wake up from our spiritual slumber. Father, we commit this time to you. Thank you, and in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, as Christians, we are called to be radically different from the people in this world. And that also means that our lives ought to look radically different from, from the people uh, in this world. You know, we are all part of God's kingdom, and that means that our lives ought to be marked by, that our lives ought to reflect the values of the kingdom of God. We are in this world. We are not of this world. As you can see, we ought to look radically different from those around us. You know, as we delve into uh, this passage together, the Beatitudes, let me just share um, this visual aid. Um, I think this is going to help you um, better understand and appreciate our Lord's teachings here in the Beatitudes. And the reason why I share this triangle is because these Beatitudes are all connected. There's a relationship and there's a progression So I'm going to have this triangle up here, and I'm going to do my best to help you better understand how how each beatitude leads to the next one, and how all of this is connected, and what what does all of this have to do for kingdom living? So I just wanted to to explain uh, what that means. And, And this afternoon, as we delve into this passage together, I would like for us to consider three things. Number one, the foundation for kingdom living. And and during the first point, we're going to be focusing on the left side of the triangle. And second point, the power for kingdom living. And during this point, second point, we will be focusing on what is at the top of the triangle, the fourth beatitude. And and point number three, the impact of kingdom living. And during this point, we'll be focusing on what is on the right side of the triangle. Now, with that in mind, let's jump into the first point, the foundation for kingdom living. We'll be looking at the left side of the triangle. Jesus begins uh, the Beatitudes uh, with the first one, number th- uh, verse number three, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does being poor in spirit mean, and what does this look like? Let me tell you what it is not first. It does not mean lack of wealth and possessions. It also does not mean poor-spirited. 
Here, Jesus is not referring to someone who lacks drive and enthusiasm and passion for life. What then does poor in spirit mean? To help you better understand, um, let me quote Martin Lloyd-Jones, and this is what he writes concerning someone who is poor in spirit. There is no one in the kingdom of God who is not poor in spirit. It is the fundamental characteristic of the Christian and of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. It means a complete absence of pride, a complete absence of self-assurance and self-reliance. It means a consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of God. It is nothing then that we can produce. It is nothing that we can do in ourselves. It is just this tremendous awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. That is to be poor in spirit. Remember when prophet Isaiah, when he came face to face with the glory of God? Remember how he responded? Isaiah 6, 5. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's how he responded. When he came face to face with the glory of God, the beauty of God, that was his response. I am ruined. I am nothing before God. Elsewhere in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is Paul, Apostle Paul's confession, right? After coming to grips with the grace of God and the beauty of Jesus Christ, this was his confession. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I am the worst. That was his response after experiencing God's amazing and saving grace. James Boyce, in his commentary on, on, on the teachings of the Beatitudes, this is what he writes concerning someone who is poor in spirit. Being poor in spirit is to be spiritually bankrupt before God. It is the mental state of the man who has recognized something of the righteousness and holiness of God, who has seen into the sin and the corruption of his own heart, and has acknowledged in his inability to please God. Such a person is poor in spirit. Now, what does being poor in spirit look like? Let me help you to see it here. See, a person who is poor in spirit cannot help but to acknowledge that he is a wretched sinner who deserves nothing but God's wrath and judgment. A person who is poor in spirit cannot help but to recognize that he is utterly nothing before God. A person who is poor in spirit is fully aware, is fully aware of the fact that he desperately needs God's saving grace. A person who is poor in spirit relies on the mercy of God. A person who is poor in spirit humbly cries out, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. So in a nutshell, someone who is poor in spirit is rich in faith because he realizes that he is absolutely nothing before God and that there's absolutely nothing that he can do to earn God's favor. It has to come all from God. Now, this leads to the next beatitude. Verse 4, the blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, the first beatitude leads to the second beatitude. A person who is poor in spirit is also the one who mourns. And the question is, why? What is the connection here? And what are the reasons for mourning? There are three reasons. Number one, our own sinful nature. 
because this is who we are. And the more you see the sins in your own lives, when you see that the waging war within, you want to live for God, but you can't because you're totally depraved and wretched sinner. And you come to realize that more and more, and that makes you mourn because you can live a life that is utterly pleasing before God. Number two, you also mourn because of the sins of others. And number three, you mourn because of the evil and the brokenness and the pain and the suffering that you see in this world because this is not the, God, the world that God has created. It was never meant to be this way, right? If you are poor in spirit, you will mourn because there is a growing awareness of sin in your own life. There is a deep conviction of sin in your own life. And such awareness and conviction leads you to mourn, to get on your knees and cry out for mercy. 2 Corinthians 7.10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Now you see how the first and the second beatitude are connected. As a matter of fact, how the first beatitude leads to the second beatitude. And this morning is exactly mentioned in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, where Paul says, the good I want to do, I cannot do it. The evil I do not want to do, I keep on doing. This is who I am. There's this waging war within, and I struggle with this. In verse 24, he goes on to confess, wretched man that I am, who would deliver me from this body of death? This is who I am. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here's a man who is poor in spirit, who mourns that he is like this. But that in turn turns him to his Lord and Savior. Now the question that I have is that for you is this. Do you have a growing awareness of sin in your life? Do you have a deep conviction of sin in your life? Do you feel this tension in your heart, this waging war within? What Paul is talking about here, Romans chapter 7. Can you relate? The good I want to do, I cannot do it. The evil I do not want to do, I keep on doing. Can you relate to that? If you have answered yes to all those three questions, do not be discouraged because you're at a good place. The fact that you can uh, acknowledge this growing awareness of sin in your life means that you are growing in grace. The fact that you have this deep conviction of sin, it means that you are growing up in the gospel. And that the fact that you feel this tension in your heart, what Paul is talking about in Romans 7, this is talk of war within. You want to live for God, but, but you can't because your sinful nature won't let you. I mean, if you feel that tension, that means you are being transformed into the image of God through the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. So do not be discouraged. You're at a good place. The fact that you feel the tension shows that you are in Christ and that God is at work. Because if you're still dead in your sins and trespasses, you couldn't care less. You wouldn't feel that tension because you are still dead in your sins and trespasses. But then the fact that you feel it, the fact that you struggle with it, that's a great sign that God is at work in your life. So do not be discouraged. Martin Lloyd-Jones, to help you, um, to help us 
um, better see the, the connection between the first and the second beatitude, this is what he writes. The man who truly mourns because of his sinful state and condition is a man who is going to repent. He is indeed actually repenting already. And the man who truly repents as the result of the work of the Holy Spirit upon him is a man who is certain to be led to the Lord Jesus Christ. Having seen his utter sinfulness and hopelessness, he looks for a Savior and he finds him in Christ. No one can truly know him as his personal Savior and Redeemer unless he has first of all known what it is to mourn. It is only the man who cries out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me, who can go on to say, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. For it is when a man sees himself in this unutterable hopelessness that that the Holy Spirit reveals unto him the Lord Jesus Christ as his perfect satisfaction. Your great sorrow leads to joy, and without the sorrow, there is no joy. You see the connection now? But being poor in spirit have to do with mourning, mourning over the sins in your own life. When Jesus arrived at the tomb of Lazarus, remember what he did? He wept. He cried with Mary and Martha and all who had been gathered there. And in doing so, he was identifying with their sorrow and, and their suffering. But remember... In that passage, we are also told that, that he was deeply moved. And it's mentioned twice. But what does that mean? If you look at, it in, in, if you look at those, uh, the same word in his, in his original language in Greek, it actually means angry. Jesus was furious. But, so he, he went from weeping to being angry. So what happened? What was the object of Jesus' anger? He was staring at sin and death. And it made him angry because this is not the world that he has created. And he has seen clearly how sin and death have affected the people that he loved dearly. And that made him angry. And you and I, when we see all the brokenness in this world, all the evil in this world, we have to mourn. Does that, you know, make your heart ache? and yearn for Jesus Christ more and more. His second coming, when he has promised that on that day, I will make all things new. Do you long for that day as you mourn, right? Because that, that is what it is uh, to, to, to mourn. As we think, that, think about that in light of being poor in spirit. But our Lord Jesus Christ, he promised us in Revelation 21, 4 through 5, that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more and neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. The words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we mourn because this world is broken. We mourn because our lives are broken, but can mourn with hope, knowing that this is what is to come. Now, this uh, leads us to the next beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, the first two beatitudes, as I've said, lead to the third one. And, and the question we need to ask ourselves is, how is this all connected? But before we get there, let's think about meekness and what is meekness. Here, Jesus is now referring to someone who is quiet, gentle, timid, 
or weak. Here, I would like to define meekness as uh, an inward spirit of humility. Another way of looking at that is an absence of pride. Now, the, que- the question is, what does meekness have to do with the first two Beatitudes? How do we go from being poor in spirit to, to someone who mourns? But what does this have to do with meekness? Uh, to, to help explain, let me quote Martin Lloyd-Jones because he says it best. A man can never be meek unless he is poor in spirit. A man can never be meek unless he has seen himself as a vile sinner. These other things must come first. But when I have that that true view of myself in terms of poverty of spirit and mourning because of my sinfulness, I am led on to see that there must be an absence of pride. The meek man is not proud of himself. He does not in any sense glory in himself. He feels that there is nothing in himself of which he can boast. You come to realize that nobody can harm you. When a man truly sees himself, he knows that nobody can say anything about him that is too bad. The man who is truly meek is the one who is amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. This is what it means to be meek, to be humble before God because he realizes what's inside of you. There is absolutely nothing before God that you're spiritually bankrupt before God apart from Jesus Christ. This is who you are. There's nothing worth boasting about in us. This is what it means to be meek. But what does meekness look like? Two things. It means dying to yourself every day. Because you know this life is not about you. It was never about us. We are called to make much of Jesus Christ and to live for him him alone, his glory, and his kingdom. But in our own sinfulness, we want to use our own life as a platform to make much of ourselves, to receive all the glory and praise and honor. So meekness means dying to yourself every day. Remember what Apostle Paul said in Philippians 1-2, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Dying to yourself every day. That's what it means to be meek. Another thing is emptying yourself. You know, the the next beatitude which we'll look at says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? But how can you be filled and satisfied in Christ unless you first and foremost empty yourself from you and all the things of this world? And I think Martin Lloyd-Jones was absolutely right when he said we cannot be filled until we are first empty." So now you see how the first three Beatitudes are all connected. They follow and lead to the next one. And now let's jump to our second point, the power for kingdom living. And our focus will be on the top of that triangle, the fourth Beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You know, the first three Beatitudes, if if I may sum it up this way, focus on our desperate need for God. But in the fourth Beatitude, comes God's provision, God's solution to our desperate need. What is that? Jesus Christ, who alone can satisfy the inner inner longings of our hearts. Now, what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? What do you think that means? Thank you, Calvin. You're right. It means to become more like Jesus, right? It means to become more like Jesus. Jesus is having this longing to grow in grace, 
having this desire to want to grow up in the gospel. And I do believe that this fourth beatitude captures the very essence of the gospel. Monteloy Jones, and I'm quoting him often because he said it best, and, and, and this is what he says regarding this specific beatitude and all the buildup leading up to this beatitude. I have taken the trouble to point out in each case how every one of these beatitudes follows the previous one. This beatitude follows all the others. I am poor in spirit. I realize that I have no righteousness. I realize that face to face with God and his righteousness, I am utterly helpless. I can do nothing. Not only that, I mourn because of the sin that is within me. I have come to see as a result of the operation of the Holy Spirit, the blackness of my own heart. I know what it is to cry out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me and desire to be rid of this vileness that is within me? Not only that, I am meek. Nobody else can hurt me. Nobody else can insult me. Nobody can can ever say anything too bad about me. I have seen myself as something truly hateful, and it is because of this that I have hungered and thirsted after righteousness. I have longed for it. I have seen that I cannot create or produce it, and that nobody else can. I have seen my desperate position in the sight of God. I have hungered and thirsted for that righteousness, which will put me right with God, that will reconcile me to God and give me a new nature in life. And I have seen it in Christ. I have been filled And I have received it all as a free gift. Now you see the connection? But this fourth beatitude, this is the most important one. Because here comes our God's provision, God's answer to our need. Christ himself, who says, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I will satisfy you. I will fill you. The question I have for you is this. Are you hungry and thirsty for God? Are you hungry and thirsty for more and more of God? As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, the living God. Is that your confession? Are you hungry and thirsty for God? Augustine, who is a theologian, and he is known for his famous work, Confessions. And if you haven't read it, I want to highly recommend it. Pick up a copy and read it. Uh, But I want to read you a portion um, of the confession um, that he writes in his book. And I do believe that this specific confession uh, captures what we are talking about here. And I quote, The house of my soul is too small for you to come to it. May it be enlarged by you. It is in ruins. Restore it. Late have I loved you, beauty so old and so new. Late have I loved you. And see, you were within and I was in the external world and sought you there. And in my unlovely state, I plunged into those unlovely creative things which you made. You were with me and I was not with you. The lovely things kept me far from you. Though if they did not have their existence in you, they had no existence at all. You called and cried out loud and shattered my deafness. You are radiant and resplendent, and you put to flight my blindness. You are fragrant, and I drew in my breath and now pant after you. I tasted you, and I feel but hunger and thirst for you. You touched me, and I am set on fire to attain the peace which is yours. That was Augustine's confession after encountering God. 
sounds like someone who is poor in spirit. Someone who mourns because he has seen the blackness in his own heart. Sounds like someone who is humble and meek. And that led him to his Lord and Savior. And he says, I am hungry and thirsty for more and more of God. Because he alone can satisfy the inner longings of my heart. Is the same true of you? Can you echo the same words? Are you hungry and thirsty for more and more of God? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? As the, psalm, as the psalmist says in 73, Psalm uh, 73, 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. I mean, is that your confession? Perhaps because you've been too consumed by the things of this world, that that has been affecting your spiritual appetites. Maybe you're not hungry and you're not thirsty for God because your heart is filled with and consumed with things of this world. And this is the reason why being meek means you empty yourself all of those things so that you can be filled, right? But are you hungry and thirsty for more and more of God? John Piper, as he writes uh, this article entitled The Greatest Enemy of Our Hunger for God, this is what he writes. It's a sobering reminder for all of us. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. The greatest adversary of God, love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not the poison for evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. But when these replace an appetite for God himself, idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable and all of them can become deadly substitutes for God. Perhaps your heart's been consumed and filled with these deadly substitutes from things of this world. What are those things? If you're not hungry and thirsty for more and more of God, then something must be in your heart. What are those things? I'm going to challenge you to honestly examine your heart. Let's jump to our last point, the impact of kingdom living. We'll be focusing on the right side of the triangle. See, the fourth beatitude addresses our desperate need mentioned in the first three beatitudes, right? And without the fourth beatitude, because it is the the most important one, it it is the one that captures the essence of the gospel, it is impossible to live out what is mentioned in beatitudes five, six, and seven without number four. And I do believe that Beatitudes 5, 6, and 7, they highlight the result of being filled with Christ. And this is what uh, someone who continues to hunger and thirst after God, this is what his life will, will look like. Let's jump to the fifth Beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I think we must first and foremost remember that The mercy that we extend to others is the mercy that we have been given in Jesus Christ. And there is also a correlation between the first beatitude and the fifth beatitude. What does being poor in spirit have to do with being merciful? Well, somebody who is poor in spirit knows that 
Apart from the mercy of God, he will be doomed. Someone who is poor in spirit relies on the mercy of God. Someone who is poor in spirit have personally experienced that mercy. So without that, there's no way for you to be merciful. Now you see the connection? The mercy that we give is the mercy that we have been given. And how will you be merciful? Unless you have first experienced that mercy through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's jump to the Beatitude number 6, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There's also a correlation between the second Beatitude and the sixth Beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are the pure in heart. They go hand in hand. Unless you have first seen the blackness of your heart, the condition of your wretched and broken heart, why would you desire to to have a a purity of heart? So there is a correlation. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, and blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And someone who is poor in spirit and somebody who mourns, they recognize this, right? The blackness of his own heart, the fact that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 79. And you'll be able to echo the same words of confession as David has said in Psalm 51, verses 1 through 12. I mean, this is David's confession after he sinned with Bathsheba. And what does he say in verse 10? Create in me a clean heart. Because he has seen how messed up, wretched, totally depraved, broken his heart is. So as he mourns, he asks God to create in him a pure heart. But what does having um, this purity of heart mean in light of the Christian life, in light of kingdom living? It It means to have an undivided heart a heart that is wholly devoted to God and God alone, single-focused. And it's your desire and your desire to, to worship God and to live for Him and to make His name great, to advance His kingdom. And this is what it means to, to have a, a purity of heart, to have an undivided heart. Jump to this. Beatitude number 7, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What does being meek have to do with being a peacemaker? As Martin Lloyd-Jones reminds us, the peacemaker has only one concern, and it is the glory of God among men. And the peacemaker is the man whose central concern is the glory of God, who spends his life in trying to minister to that glory. Unless you empty yourself completely and unless you die to yourself every day so that you can live for God, it is impossible for you and me to be a peacemaker. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21, now, Apostle Paul reminds us that God has entrusted to us this ministry of reconciliation. He has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. What does that mean? That we're Christ's ambassadors. And just as we see God, um, who loved us so much, so that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die for us on the cross. And when he did that, he made peace 
on our behalf with God by the blood of his cross. And when we live for God in his glory, and when we share the gospel as Christ's ambassadors, we are participating in this peacemaking. We are leading people to Christ and asking um, the Holy Spirit to help them to see all this so that they can make peace with God as they put their faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ. But unless you're meek, you can't do this, right? Now you see the connection. See, on the left side of the triangle, as Jesus began the, his teachings and the Beatitudes, the left side of the triangle focuses on our being, who we are, who we have become in Christ. The right side of the triangle focuses on our doing, what, how we should live our lives as Christians. I think a lot of the times our problem is we put too much emphasis or even energy on what is on the right side while neglecting what is on the left. Because if you don't, if you don't have the left side of the triangle figured out, because that ought to be the foundation, if being poor in spirit, that is not your starting point, because now we have seen how that leads to the most important one, to be hungry and thirsty after God. Now, if you have the left side of the triangle not figured out, forget about the right side. That's not going to happen. This is why Jesus begins focusing on our being first, on the left side. And then, after showing us how he intends to meet our need, he shows us now, now that you have the being figured out, now we'll naturally follow the doing part, right? Jesus says in Beatitude number 8, verses 10, 11, and 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says, if you live like this, you will be persecuted. I mean, these are the values of the kingdom. This is what kingdom living looks like. But these are these aren't necessarily the values and qualities that are celebrated in our culture. Are they not? No one likes to be poor in spirit. Is it good to mourn? Meek, humility, to hunger and thirst for more and more of Christ, to be merciful, to want to have a pure, uh, purity of heart, to be a peacemaker. I mean, these are, aren't necessarily the very things that people will gravitate towards and be like, oh, I want to live like that. Not necessarily the qualities that are celebrated. But Jesus says, I want you to live this way because you belong to me. You're part of my kingdom. But if you live this way, you will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. But let's get this straight. There's a difference between persecuted because of your own folly and stupidity. But Jesus is talking about here, if you live faithfully and if you uphold the values of the kingdom, and you will be persecuted because of righteousness. You will be persecuted because of Jesus. Those are two very different things. I think a lot of the times we stop here right in the middle. And, and in Philippians 1.29, I think um, Apostle Paul is absolutely right. When he writes, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. I think we tend to stop halfway. God, I'll believe in you so that I can go to heaven for you are, and, and so that you can bless me so that 
Uh, you can protect them from things with this world, and that sounds good. But the suffering part, no thanks. It's just too intense for me. Maybe that's reserved for the more devout, the more faithful. But I'll believe in you so that I can go to heaven. Perhaps that's our problem. We want just enough God in our own lives so that we go to heaven, but as soon as we leave these doors, we put God in a box. We compartmentalize our lives so that Monday through Saturday, our lives look totally different. Matter of fact, we blend in with the culture around us. We're now radically different. Perhaps that is our problem. Diedrich Bonhoeffer writes concerning faithful kingdom living, the suffering is the badge of true discipleship. Have you been persecuted because of your faith in Christ? Have you been going through hardship because of your faith in Christ? I mean, it's easy for us to compromise. It's easy for us not to stand up in faith. It's easy for us to remain silent in those moments when we have to speak up. But Christ is saying, you're part of my kingdom and I want you to live this way. But make no mistake, you'll be persecuted. But when that happens, rejoice. Rejoice. Knowing that your life belongs to me, knowing that there's absolutely nothing in this world that can separate you from me, knowing that a kingdom is coming that cannot be shaken, knowing that you're part of that kingdom and, the, and when Jesus comes on that day, you will be perfected. You'll be, standing, you'll be standing before him and you're going to spend eternity with him. So as you look forward to that, rejoice. Because as long as we are living on this side of heaven, we will continue to have to persevere, persecutions in faith. If you look at Acts chapter 5, verses 40 to 42, this is uh, the apostles during the early church. They went around sharing Christ boldly, and they got arrested. They often uh, found themselves under persecution. And let me read verses 40 and onward. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus until they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, check this out, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer this honor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Interesting. Did the apostles respond to the beating and the persecution and the arrest saying, okay, let's never do this ever again. It's too risky. No. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for righteousness' sake, for Jesus. We have the same faith to respond like that. When we find find ourselves in situations where We have to stand up in faith and not be ashamed of who we are in Christ. When that moment comes, how would you respond? I do believe that true faith shines most brightly in the darkest moments. Will your faith shine? And as that happens, will you rejoice, you know, through it all? See, this kingdom living, living out the values of the kingdom, what is on this triangle, this is not something that we can do by ourselves on our own strength. And if you perhaps have been focusing too much on the, what is on the right side of the triangle, maybe you're just trying to do this on your own, 
Um, you're going to fall flat on your face in knowing that I can't do this because the values of the kingdom is not natural to us. It's foreign to us. And our sinful nature will always get in the way of living that out. Perhaps all of us need to ask God to, to help us and to break us, maybe, so that we relearn this. Perhaps all of us need to go back to being poor in spirit and start all over and ask God to, to teach us over and over again what it means to, to be utterly broken by the gospel so that we come running to our Savior, clinging to him, because without him there's no hope for us. And I think our prayer needs to be as we continue to live in this broken world, God, help us, help mercy upon us so that we will continue to be hungry and thirsty for more and more of you. Holy Spirit, help us so that we will turn to you as we turn from the things with this world and we will never look back. Because without that, this kingdom living, living for God's glory, not going to happen. Impossible. So let's ask God to help us so that as we hunger and thirst for more and more of Jesus Christ and as, and, and as the, the spirit who now lives in us continues to work in us to be, so to make us more and more like him, let's ask God to help us so that he will enable and empower us to live like this. And when persecution comes, let's ask God to also grant us faith so that instead of grumbling, complaining, we will rejoice as we eagerly await for that day of Christ's return. Let's pray.